All right, so uh, as I was saying, some of the greatest errors we can make are errors in the most simple and fundamental of truths. And so question number two is helping us to understand that it is important to recognize everyone ought to believe that there is a God. And ultimately, our true goal is that everyone would not only believe that there is a God, but that they would believe God, that they would trust him at his word, that they would recognize that the things that he has to say to us are good and holy things, that they are trustworthy, and that they are for our good. But before you believe God, before you can actually put your faith and trust in him, you must believe that there is a God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See how important it is there. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So we're talking about the very fundamental building blocks of a right relationship with the Lord God. Now, we we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that only Christians have a relationship with God, which isn't entirely true, right? In fact, Every living creature spoken into existence by God has some kind of a relationship with him. Um, Whether that relationship is a broken and hostile relationship or whether that relationship is a relationship of harmony and love, uh, that all depends on how we see his son, Jesus Christ, and how we either receive or reject the work of his son. But in order for us to have a right relationship with God, really the first steps are to believe that he is that he is the God that he says that he is the God that is revealed in Scripture. So to be clear, is it enough to believe in just any God? Is that what we're all shooting for here? It is not. Okay, there are many false gods. There are many gods or many forces in the universe that would like you to believe that they are gods. We are talking specifically tonight, though, about believing that the God who reveals himself through the, the Bible is the true God. How would a belief in any kind of God do a person any actual good? Think about that. Some people have made the claim that if you just believe that there is a higher power, a force out there, then it will do you good. How, how do you think that would do a person good? What good would that be to just believe in any old God? If we're just saying it doesn't matter what you believe in, as long as you believe that there's a God out there, then, then you're going to be doing yourself a, a, a service by believing that God is out there. Josh, you have your hand up? They believe that that higher power has their best interest at heart in some way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the idea of believing in some kind of a higher power is, is usually, it's sort of like a psychological technique to make a person start to be a little bit more humble in their life. And humility is good, but really it's a form of self-deception if you don't believe that the God you're believing in is actually the real God. And we see this in different organizations right now. You see it mostly in like 12-step recovery programs where literally, they'll literally tell you, it doesn't matter if you even believe in a God. It could be that this ashtray is your higher power or that doorknob is your higher power. Just as long as you tell yourself that there's something greater than you and that you need the help of that greater thing. But it's, it's kind of pitiful to think that way, that we would have to trick ourselves into humility, right? 
it doesn't really do you any functional good to just think that something out there might be greater than you. Do we really need to convince ourselves that that's true? I mean, it's obvious that there are things out there that are greater than ourselves. What we need is a true God, a God who is real, a God who has power, a God who is what he says he is and does what he says he's going to do. So we need to believe not just in any God, but in the one God of the Bible. Some refuse to believe. Psalm 14.1, bring that up for you, says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So you might take note here, if you look at that verse from Psalm 14, the verse says a lot more than just the fool doesn't believe. He says in his heart that there is no God. What is, what is it trying to communicate there? It's, it's showing to us an internal conversation that's going on in the heart of the fool. The fool is trying to convince himself to deny the truth that there is really a God, a truth that he simply does not want to accept. It is not a convenient truth to him. So he is trying to convince himself, essentially, that there is no God and he's free to do whatever he wants to do. Belief that God exists is not in itself enough to save a person. So this is really a primary step. You can believe that there is a God, but you can reject that God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. So basic belief in God is not enough for salvation, but it is an important step towards salvation. You can believe, but then ignore that that God has any kind of impact or power in your life. And we call this agnosticism, right? Someone who will acknowledge that perhaps there is a God in the universe, but they don't know enough yet to put their faith or trust in them, or they're not comfortable turning over the keys to their life to this God. And it might sound like Ignorance of God is better than rejection of God. But in all practical intents and purposes, they're really no different at all. To ignore the God that is there is really no less than to rebel against Him. And since our God is an active God who gives commands to what He has created, if we don't listen to Him, if we ignore Him, we are in active rebellion against Him. You can also believe in God, but believe in the wrong God. You can believe in a false God who is, in fact, no true God at all. There are many who give an intense amount of devotion, attention, and affection to so-called gods in this world, but these gods are nothing less than empty images of God. They're, they're make-believe ideas that we have created in our own minds that can do us no earthly good. So those are instances of belief that there is a God, but not belief in God. We need to get beyond belief in, uh, belief in God, but we're going to start there. So question two addresses this foundational truth. It's a truth that must be built upon. Before one can hope to believe that God is indeed the God that he, he says that he is, and that he will do what he promises to do, we must begin at the very first step, and that's acknowledging the existence of God. Now, the prevailing attitude in our culture today is that everyone is entitled to believe whatever they want to believe about everything, right? Where does this 
mentality come from? Where does this mindset that everyone should be permitted to just believe however they want to believe and that no one should have any right to challenge what they believe to be true? Where does that come from and why is it so popular in our society today? <laughs> yeah, so, so Jeff suggested that um, this idea of everyone should be entitled to their own opinion about everything and that no one should challenge it, that that started in the 90s. And I would uh, agree that there was a flourishing of that type of thought, that existential relativism that gr gained a lot of traction in the 90s. But as Ross mentioned, uh, really it started a little bit earlier than that. It started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve saw God. They walked with him in the garden and he, they were given covenant commands from God that they were supposed to follow. And they were not too difficult or complex. They had great freedom. They had dominion over the things that God had made. They had been given a position of honor and they were able to interact with God freely but they were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so rather than believe God at his word and recognize that to eat from that tree would result in their death, in a, the curse of death coming upon them, they decided to believe a different reality. They believed that if they ate of that fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would become like God and that they would either be equal to him or even perhaps greater than God himself. And so this is something that's deeply ingrained in man's heart ever since the fall of Adam, who is our representative. Adam's fall impacted every single human that came after him, okay? with the exception of Jesus Christ. But this idea of everyone should have the freedom to believe whatever they want to believe, no matter how ridiculous it might be, it sounds good on the surface because it seems to ensure the maximum amount of freedom for people. We as Americans especially are in love with our freedoms. We don't want to have anyone telling us how to think. We want to have dominion over our own minds and our own hearts. But freedom to believe in deception, is that really freedom at all? To believe in what is false is only encouraging someone to do what is damaging to themselves. Many would argue that there's no justification for compelling someone to believe or even urging them to believe but what this does is it elevates prerogative, personal perspective, or it elevates choice as perhaps the highest virtue of all virtues, even above truth. If prerogative and personal choice are of greater quality and honor than truth, then no law really means anything whatsoever. Even the law that prerogative is king is in fact an assault on prerogative itself. And so it must therefore be rejected by its own principle. So there is something greater than our freedom to just think however we want to think. And that greater thing is truth. And this God that we are encouraging one another to believe in, to put our faith in tonight, is none other than the God of truth himself. If something is true, it is because God has declared it to be true. The Christian therefore needs to think differently about this idea of freedom of thought. Every man ought to believe in God says this, this uh, second catechism question. And those who do not believe in God are doing considerable harm to themselves. They are offending the God who does, in fact, exist 
the God who they owe their very existence to. So, we know that this fact cannot be forced upon people, and we have no desire to force this fact upon others. But contrary to popular belief, to firmly declare the truth and to insist that this belief is sin, that is not forcing an idea upon another. If it is in fact true that we all ought to believe in God, then it's then it will, by its true existence, eventually force the denier to face the reality. So it's not, you, when you, people always like to say, if you're, if you're telling me that there's a real God, you're forcing that down my throat. You're trying to make me believe what you believe. But in honesty, anytime we suggest anything to someone else, we're doing no different. So there's a double standard in the intellectual world today where to evangelize, to insist that there is a God and that we should all believe in it, somehow that is an assault on someone else's freedom. But if the freedom to do whatever you want to do, it doesn't really exist, then there is no assault at all. In fact, all it is doing is helping someone to reveal a real danger that they're going to fall victim to if somebody doesn't make them aware of it. The value of free speech hinges on the fact that expressed belief is not forced belief. Anyone who would oppress the preaching of the gospel is themselves trying to force an unbelief on the masses. Think about that. If we were to live in a society where they said, you're not allowed to preach the gospel, essentially what they're doing is trying to force unbelief on the nation. So we must hold tightly to this truth that God is real, that we believe he is a real personal God who exists, and we must hold tight to this right to preach that truth and to share it with the people around us. It is essential to our relationship with God to be able to declare and confess that he is real. Now, unbelief is more than a simple mistake. It is sin. And it is rebellion against God. So let me share some verses that support this fact. Mark 16, 14 says, Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And this is after Jesus has given his life on the cross. He has been in the grave for three days. He rose from the dead. Victorious over sin, victorious over death. And he's begun to show himself and reveal that his resurrection is real. And he starts doing this with his close disciples. Eventually he shows himself to over 500 individuals for a period of about 40 days. So in verse 14 of Mark 16, it says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So you see here clearly, Christ is rebuking his disciples for unbelief because they refused to believe that he was who he said he was, that he was going to rise from the dead, that he had power over sin and power over death. Romans eleven twenty, Paul here explains that the unbelieving Jews were broken off from the root of Israel because of what? Because of their unbelief that Jesus was the Messiah, that God would do what he said he would do, that he would send his son as a redeemer. Uh, believing branches from what he describes as other wild trees would be grafted into the root of Israel. Uh, that represents Gentile nations who were not a part of the ethnic history of the Jews, but would be connected to that history through faith, and they would be grafted into the place of those branches that were broken off. So we see here that unbelief results in punishment. It is sin against God to refuse to believe that he is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Can I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Um, Matthew chapter 
answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And I believe there's another mention of Jesus saying the same thing in the book of Mark as well. Yeah. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Thank you for sharing that, that passage. Um, to deny that God is real is an offense against the living God. Um, can you imagine how offensive it would be to you if someone tried to erase your identity and tried to prove that you did not actually exist when you in fact do exist? How much more so is it offensive to a God who gives life to those who deny him? A God who makes it possible for them to express their opinions about religion and faith and to deny that God exists, they can only do so because God is allowing them to live in the creation that he sustains and upholds by the word of his power. So disbelief is more than just a lack of information. It is a rejection of truth. And we're going to build on that as we go here tonight. Now, without fail, the sin of unbelief leads to more sin. It leads to greater immoralities. We return to Psalm 14, which we mentioned uh, just a little bit ago. I think I have this on the slide. This is the second half. 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and that what follows after that. It says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So what Psalm 14.1 is expressing here, that it begins with this denial of the existence of God. When the fool says in his heart that there is no God, there is no one to enforce justice upon me, there is no one that is over me that my life is owed to, then what happens as a result of that? These fools who deny God, they become corrupt. They do abominable things. There is none of them who does good, who does not believe in the living God. When we think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments um, can rightly be divided into what we would call the first and the second table of commandments that God gives to his nation Israel. And these are fundamental commands that even speak to civil order today. And so the first four commands of the table all have to do with our relationship to God. And then the last six commands all have to do with our relationship to one another. Um, these are really inseparable. In order to be a good neighbor to your friend, you really need to know that God is real. You need to understand the law that he pours out onto us. But let's look at this first table. The first commandment is that the Lord is one. And you shall have no other gods before him. So when you say that the Lord is none, you are breaking the first command, which says that the Lord is one. The second command has to do uh, with making images of God, which I would say disbelief will lead to a violation of the second commandment, but is not itself a violation of the second command. The third command is you shall not take my name in vain. So by disbelieving that there is a true God, then often the word or title God is thrown around as if it has no meaning or truth. And so inevitably the person who doesn't believe in God is going to take the name of God in vain. And then the fourth command is you shall honor the Sabbath day. In other words, not only do you believe that there is a God, but you need to worship that God. You need to give him the honor that he deserves. And those who do not believe that he is will by no means honor him and give him worship. Remember, I'm thinking of the third uh, commandment, you shall not take my name in vain. His very name is what? 
I am. I am, right? Yahweh is the self-existent one. He has always been, and he doesn't have to rely on anyone else for his being. See, I exist, but I am not self-existing. I cannot say that I am in the way that God says that I am, because I only am because God has let me be. But when we deny the existence of God, we are, in fact, violating the very name of Yahweh. We are saying that he is not, when in fact he is. When in the eyes of man there is no supreme being responsible for the administration of the law, when people deny that there is a God, then by default, man acts in the foolishness that is fitting someone who has turned away from God. And so um, this isn't a direct... Um, a direct example of this, but I think this parable kind of speaks to it. So I want to read to you from Matthew 24. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 24. This won't be on the screen, I don't believe. Let me make sure I don't have that as a slide. I don't. All right, so this is Matthew 24. I'm going to read verses 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. So this starts off with a parable about a servant who does what a servant is called to do. He, he recognizes the authority of his master. He honors his master's position over him. He cares for the needs of the master. He is obedient to his charge. Uh, then in verse 48 it says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, then the master of that servant will come on a day when the servant does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this isn't exactly a port over, but when you think about this, the servant who has a present master who is there, who he is accountable to, is more likely to do the work of that master and to fulfill his duties. But when a, a servant believes that the master is far away, is irrelevant, does not apply to his life, and he's not going to be there to enforce the rules, then he will tend to do what he wants to do. He'll tend to disregard the law. He'll tend to do what is wicked and abominable until he gets caught and has to face the punishment of that. And so disbelief will inevitably lead to a greater degree of uh, of wickedness in our actions, in our thoughts, and in the way that we treat others. We cannot hope to enter into Christian faith until we first believe that God is. We have already seen in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. So that knowledge of his existence is primary before there can be a trust in his command and an obedience to his word. And Romans 10.14 reinforces this. It says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So really, we're talking about very first steps here. Understanding that God exists, that he is real. And he exists in a very specific way, in a way that he has revealed to us. And he's revealed to us his existence um, in a couple of different ways. Before we get to that, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, must a person first hear before they can believe? What do you think? Does a person have to hear about God before they can believe in God? 
No. How would they believe without hearing? Okay, yeah, good answer, Adam. Um, another question we can ask is, doesn't the scripture say that all people believe that there is a God? And for this, we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Romans. Don't have that one up there. Do I? Yeah, Romans chapter 1. Here it is on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against who? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? It means to try to keep it hidden, right? To pretend like it's not there. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, how is it plain? He goes on to describe it. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, and who's it talking about when it says they there? It's talking about everyone. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there, there are two modes by which God reveals his existence to us. And the first is very simple. And, and all you need is one of the five senses to know that there is a God. You can look out and see a magnificent sunset, the complexity of the beauty of what God has made. You can see the stars glimmering in the cosmos and recognize that they are millions of light years away and yet they stay in order, that there's an orbit by which the sun functions, that God has created great organization to the world that we live in in such a way that we can count on the sun coming up in the morning tomorrow. You look at the, the technical brilliance of what God has created and you've got to know in your heart of hearts that what you see around you, its beauty, its order, is no mistake. This is something intentional and that something has made it. Now, you don't know all the details about who God is by looking at a mountain or by listening to the ocean or by hearing the birds in the morning singing the song of, of beauty. You don't know it by the taste of something delicious, but this is all evidence that there is a God and that he is real. So this is the general revelation of nature that tells us every day that we are not accidents, that we are here for a purpose, that something has put us here by design. Everyone sees this or hears it or feels it or experiences it to some degree. And so every human being is without excuse. We all know deep in our hearts, the most staunch atheist, I believe, knows deep in their hearts that we are not some kind of cosmic, cosmic mistake. Yeah. Now, can we believe that there is a God by the general revelation? Yes, we can. Can we believe in God in such a way that we might be saved by grace simply by what we see in the universe? I don't know that that's necessarily possible. I think there is a point in which what God has revealed to us through his special revelation, the words that he has given to us through the prophets and the apostles, through recorded scripture that has been preserved over the ages, that must be shown to us so that we can see that not only is there a God, but there is a debt that man owes to that God. That every one of us is sinful. And so the conflict and the sickness and the death that is all around us springs from this disobedience that we have, this dishonor that we have showed toward this God that we must admit is real. By the gospel preached 
And by the word proclaimed, we understand that it is only through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to redeem us from our sins, it is only by faith in him that this disorder and this broken relationship that we have with God can be made right. He washes our sin away. He helps us to be alive spiritually when before we were spiritually dead to the things of of eternity. So I don't believe that the general revelation can necessarily save us. There must be some proclamation of the truth. And that is why Romans 10, 14 says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Um, Your good example of moral and ethical living in front of your neighbors points people to God, but it is not enough to save them. You must preach the gospel to people. You must show them that God has overcome your sin by faith in Jesus Christ, that he has made you new. We need to be willing to say these things and to articulate with our words what we believe. That's part of the reason we're doing this catechism focus, is that we need to be able to know what we believe. And by learning these things in such a detailed manner together, it's going to really help you to be able to articulate, to tell someone else what you believe and why. It's not just going to be, uh, well, the Bible says it, right? You know, and so often you ask a Christian, why do you trust in Jesus? Or why do you believe that certain thing about your God? I think the Bible says it. But when we study these catechisms together and we see the verses that anchor these truths to our hearts, we can say, look, I believe it because Romans 10, 14 says that how are we going to call on those uh, who, who we have, how are we going to call on him who we've not believed? And how are they going to believe if they've never heard the word of God? And how are they to hear if it's not preached in truth? So this catechism can be very beneficial to us in training us up and edifying us and making us stronger in our, not only in our own understanding of truth, but in our ability to share that with others. So there is a, a knowledge there. Even if one hides it from themselves, everyone knows that there is a God. The belief that question number two talks about is a baseline acknowledgement that God is real. Though all believe, many refuse to acknowledge it. And their belief lacked two proper corresponding responses in uh, that verse in Romans. Let me go back to that real quick. If you look at it carefully, it says that they did not honor him as God. So they knew that he was there, but they refused to honor him as God. So there was an acknowledgement, at least in the heart, maybe not a profession with the mouth, but they knew that there was a God. They refused to give him honor as God. The second thing it says there is they did not give him thanks. So they did not recognize or identify or confess that not only is there a God, but we owe everything to that God. That apart from that God holding up the stars and making the sun take its course every day, that our world would fall apart. The whole universe would collapse in on itself if Christ was not withholding, uh, holding it up by the word of his power. So uh, we're going to get more into the belief in God and the trust in God and future questions in the catechism. So let's return our, uh, our discussion to more of that belief that he does exist. The knowledge of God is going to evoke one of three distinct reactions from people. (coughs) First of all, it's going to result in joy for those who are regenerate. When I say regenerate, what I mean by that is there are those who were ignorant to the things of God. They knew that he was there. They did not trust in God. They didn't honor him or have a thankfulness for what he has given. But at some point in their life, God opened their eyes to the truth. And the sin that was so comfortable to them began to become something that they hated. 
They began to recognize that their lying and their selfishness and their idolatry was despicable and wicked. And they began to hate that about themselves. They also began to see that there was no solution that they could come to on their own apart from God. And so by God's spiritual work within them, their dead heart became alive. We call that regeneration. When God gives us the faith we need to believe him, to recognize that not only does he exist, but he deserves our honor and our thanks. And so for the regenerate, the knowledge that there is a God is joy to us. It causes us to, to celebrate life and to rejoice. Psalm 58, 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So we recognize the existence of God, those of us who are regenerate in him, and it gives us joy and comfort. It is not a threat to us anymore, although it once was. It is not intimidating to us as it once was. We do have a proper fear for God, but our primary response to his existence is happiness. We are so thankful that there is a God running the universe and causing his will to unfold before us. For the reprobate, meaning for the person who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, God has not regenerated their heart, their response to his existence is not joy, it is anxiety. And this is why the world is going to constantly fight against the church of God. Because the only way that a lost world can respond to the existence of God is to see him as a threat to their own personal sovereignty. When they recognize that there is a God, all they see is somebody else on the throne that they want to be sitting on. Jeremiah 5.22 Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. And though they roar, they cannot pass over it. So think about that. That is, in a very visual and beautiful way, God saying, look at how I restrain the power of this massive body of water. Millions and millions of tons of water beating against the shore all the time, and I have set the boundary for it. It cannot go farther. God is in control of nature. How much more so is he in control of little human beings like us. Brendan, you had your hand up? Yeah, uh, so you're saying um, for the reprobate, it produces anxiety. Is this yes. the same kind of anxiety that believers experience? It's or different. I would say it's a different kind of anxiety. Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, good clarification there. Do believers who are regenerate ever experience anxiety? Yes, we do. We, we live in a fallen world. And there are echoes of our desire to have control over our lives that persist in us. I think the greatest victory we have over anxiety is not calming techniques or a healthier self-image. Okay? These are not the ways we defeat anxiety. We defeat anxiety by acknowledging that only God is on the throne and that even if life seems completely chaotic to me and out of my hands, that it's in the hands of God. So does a Christian believe that perfectly all the time? Sadly, no, right? And some of us struggle with anxiety more than others, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that you are not a good Christian just because there is anxiety that you battle against. We all battle against the weakness of our flesh. Um, but in our weakness, God often shines his strength the brightest. Call, uh, Corinne, you had your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, when I first came to the Lord, like, I had anxiety through the roof. And yeah. he gave me this just unmeasurable amount of peace that mm. I had never experienced before. And so whenever I do get 
like with, with COVID and how everything started shutting down, just exactly what you said. It's that he's on the throne and that, you know, everything is for his good and it brought me down to where it was like yeah. that peace came over me again. And I think yeah. that's the complete, you know, compared to somebody who's retrograde that's not a believer, that's why you see the fear is just pumping and they're just absorbing yeah. it. And as a believer, it's like having that peace yeah. is just, it's amazing. Right. Amazing. Yeah, when we struggle with anxiety, it's typically because we have, we've taken our eyes off the Lord. Uh, and when we read 1 John, we're, we're reminded of the fact that God's perfect love has the power to cast out our fear, right? To overcome our fear. And so when we experience fear of what's going to happen tomorrow that we can't control, when we fear, experience fear over sickness or damage that might be done to us or financial ruin, then it is, as a believer our best defense to go into the sanctuary of Christ and to remember that he has won our future for us. It is secure and guaranteed by the seal of the Holy Spirit. So that is why uh, the scripture can tell us that death has no sting anymore, that even though all of us will face death, that the believer, knowing that they will be re resurrected like Christ was, that they will have an eternal dwelling place in the new heavens and the new earth alongside their Savior, should take the, the danger out of death. You know, it should disarm our great enemy. Uh, but uh, it's totally legitimate to recognize that that is one of the things that strong, good believers do struggle with sometimes. So I'm, I'm glad you asked for clarity on that. Raymond, you had your hand up. Oh, um, yeah, like I was saying, I used to call for the friend when I first met him. Um, I was uh, in my angel's days and stuff. And I used to call him and I used to be like, I was so afraid that I was a reprobate. And I was always questioning that because I, I didn't know. You mm -hmm. know I mean? I, I thought, and I read about how it was corrupt mind or whatever. Long story short, and then I, um, when I finally got saved, because I was on um, a lot of like antidepressants, and, and I had a lot of anxiety, you know what I mean? And I, I was on like strong antipsychotics, you know what I mean? And now that I, I finally gave my life to the Lord and I, I devoted myself to prayer, I'm not gonna lie, I have not had any depression or anxiety at all. I praise and God. Mind you, like I've been on psych meds for a long time. Praise God. So yeah. like I said, you know, and I, I was rejoicing because I was like, no, I'm not The Lord can absolutely <laughs> do that, right? The Lord can absolutely yeah. do that. Uh, he doesn't always choose to do that. There are some believers that really do have to be on medications to help ease some of that. But I'm really grateful to hear your testimony that you can recognize that it's the power of God that is overcoming in a way that medicine was not able to do for you. Yeah. I mean, there's a peace that surpasses our understanding and that only is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So anxiety is the natural response for the reprobate when it comes to the existence of God. And there's one other that we might consider. And for the self-deceptive person who may know that there's a God but pretends like it doesn't matter, apathy is their response. So we see this in Romans 1 verse 28. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So those who are, they try their hardest to not care about the fact that there is a God. They might acknowledge publicly that, yes, there's a God, but I don't really care. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to ignore him. He doesn't want anything with me, so I'm just going to do my own thing. Then that okay. tends to lead to an apathy towards the law and to, towards truth. And it tends to cause a person's mind to become debased. What that means is that there's no longer a fervent love for the things that God loves. 
That person who is apathetic to the existence of God is not going to care about righteousness the way that one who is regenerated in Jesus cares about righteousness. And even if they have created for themselves sort of like a, a substitute righteousness, like a worldly code of ethics, that righteousness is going to be primarily for their own benefit and not for the glory of the Lord. So even the best things that we can do, if we are not regenerate, they don't give any glory to the Lord. I mean, we might give lots of money to the poor and, and feed people who are hungry and volunteer our time at the animal shelter, but if we are not acknowledging that the God who made us sustains us day by day, if we are pretending like he is not there, then all of those good deeds are, Jesus says, like filthy rags before God. So we have already seen that unbelief is sin. But we are also told in the answer to this catechism that unbelief is something else. What is it? Sin and folly. What is folly? What does folly mean? It's foolishness, right? That it is, it is irrational, illogical thinking. It is believing what is clearly untrue. Why is it folly not to believe there is a God? It's folly to not believe there is a God because as Romans 1 taught us, everyone should know that there is a God. That the, the beauty and the complexity of creation itself should affirm in our hearts and minds that there is a God and we need to do something about that. We need to acknowledge his existence, that we need to deal with that reality. Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. That's strong language, isn't it? They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. Think about that. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. And why do they know not? Because they don't know God. So if we, if we want to be good people, if we want to live lives that could be rightfully called good, it starts not with us changing ourselves, or repairing our behavior, it starts with our understanding that there is one true God. John. Yeah, it just reminded me of when, uh, let not the rich man glory in his riches, right? Yeah. Mighty man glory is God is, it gets glory out of us knowing him, right? That scripture you read about stupid children. <laughs> it just, some may see that as harsh, but expects us to really take the study of the scriptures carefully so that we can know our God. Like Daniel said, those who know their God will carry out great exploits, right? Mm. And if we understand that um, our identity in Christ, we are conquerors. You know, that word in the Greek, even the means that we are to prevail mightily. You know, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So That's right. Like Raymond, Brother Raymond's testimony about anxiety. It's like Jesus said, Come unto me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You know, my wife had the same battle, anxiety, you know. I remember when I first got saved, that was just. Mm. Not that I'm not a mess anymore at times, but it was really a mess. And, um, yeah. You know, just when you get used to running to, you know, drugs, marijuana, whatever it is. It's like, whenever I would always have anxiety, I'd just go smoke a joint. And then when I got saved, it was like, wait a minute, I'm, 
be a man of God and so am I, right? That's right. I can't run of that anymore. So yeah. it's like I had to learn who God is yeah. and what he has promised us. So Yeah. And here's the wonder of it all, John, is that when, when it says they are stupid children there, that's not meant as a knock on kids or that God doesn't love, love kids. Later on, he calls us his beloved children. And through Christ, once you have believed that he is, but then put your faith that, in that God who is, through faith in Christ, God can become more than just a cosmic referee for your life or some king on a distant throne. He becomes like a father to us. He brings us near to him, not like stupid children, but like children who are loved by their father, who are nurtured and protected, who are given instruction, and who are raised up in the truth. And so that is the beauty of acknowledging first the existence of this God and then recognizing that he is so good and pure and mighty that there is every reason for us to put our faith and trust in him. So 1 Corinthians 15.34 says, Wake up from your drunken stupor. I skipped a couple slides there, didn't I? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. So friends, if you do not believe that God exists tonight, I I encourage you, sit and meditate on the reality that has been put before you in Scripture tonight, that we must believe that there is a God. If we refuse to believe that God is, then it is not only foolish for us to do so, but it is sinful. It is an insult to his great name. He is the I am. And he is worthy of, of worship. And all who reject him uh, are, are subject to his judgment. So we, through Christ, praise God, have a way to be reunited with this Father who is over all, this creator who is far beyond our capacity to understand. Uh, but this God who is complex and wonderful and eternal has opened a window for us to see him and to know him. And that window is Jesus Christ. So I pray that this has been encouraging to you tonight. Do you have any questions about this question two of the catechism and how we've discussed it this evening? Any other thoughts or ideas? Brendan? So I've got one that's going to be followed up depending on the answer to the first one. Okay. So using uh, Psalm 14 where the fool says there is no God, is that a reference to atheism? Yes, it would be a... a it would be a reference to somebody who rejects the existence of God. Yeah. So is it only reference to atheism or people who don't believe in Christ? I'm trying to understand what you mean there. So I, for example, when they say the fool says there is no God, can we properly apply that to the religious leaders like the Pharisees? Or say, oh, no, no, they believe in God. But Jesus clearly tells them, no, you don't. You believe yeah. in the Father, the devil. Yeah, they follow their father, the devil, right? Yeah. Uh, See, there is a profession of belief that is not true belief. And we're going to deal with that more in some of the later catechism questions. Um, We'll be able to develop what true belief looks like in the life of an individual. But as we said um, near the beginning of tonight's discussion, is that it is possible to make the error of believing, but believing on the wrong God, right? Believing on the God that really doesn't exist. So if we put our faith and hope, we say, I believe in God, but it's not the God of Scripture. It's not this God who has revealed himself in truth and has proven through the fulfillment of prophetic revelation and through the the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. If we believe in the wrong God, then that's like not believing by default in the true God. So um, you you might kind of argue that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Maybe that doesn't apply to the agnostic who says in their heart, there may be a God. Agnosticism 
is different than atheism in that it refuses to take a stance. But in reality, it's, it's a veiled form of rejection. It seems more noble, but so often the agnostic who doesn't know is also not willing to discover and find the truth. So if somebody was an agnostic who said, teach me about the Lord, I want to know whether he is trustworthy. And I would say that's in some ways a positive agnosticism. And it's an agnosticism that can't last because if you want to know the truth of God, it's because God is bringing you to his truth. He is, the Holy Spirit is wakening you up. But one who is content to walk through life as an agnostic and to say that these are things that men can't understand, then, then they're denying the fact that God has said, here I am, know me. And he has said that through his word. Any other questions or comments before we wrap up? I'm going to Christine. Back to, to um, the anxiety. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm always anxious. So does that mean I don't trust in God? Well, to be truthful, you are not always anxious. Okay, no one is always anxious. But when we go through periods of anxiety, then what does the Christian do in response to that? How are we to handle that properly? We've got to look at our lives and ask, what is causing this anxiety? What am I afraid of? And why am I not trusting in the Lord God to give me I'm peace? I know what I'm afraid of. Okay. <laughs> and that's when I get mostly anxious, right? Okay, well, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. That's a big one for you. But I think that would be more of like a personal counseling kind of situation. We have to get into some personal stuff to talk about the whys and mechanics but, of but that. That means, but you're saying that people that have anxiety don't trust in God. And I so believe like I do. the people who don't trust in God have anxiety. Yeah, it's but a little see, bit different. I have anxiety, but anxiety, anxiety is a sin, right? That, yeah. You should just say what it is. Anxiety is a sin, so we treat it like all the sins. And to crucify it, knowing that, it, that if you are a Christian, it has been paid for on the cross by, by Christ already. But all Christians sin. We yeah. all sin. Is our, our lives should be marked by continual repentance. And so when you notice anxiety in your life, you repent again because it is a sin. And, but the Bible is clear that we shouldn't be anxious as Christians because of the reasons that we've already talked about. I'm just not going to a doctor right now. <laughs> no, that's not how you overcome it. <laughs> yeah, we've got to, every, every sin that we commit against God is, need, we need to acknowledge so it. Is a sin against God then. Yeah, anxiety is a sin. Because if God is in control, and we don't have proper reason to worry and to have anxiety, is it a sin that we often fall into? Yes. But is it a sin we need to repent of? Always. It's not, there is no room for us to say, well, this is a sin that hits me so often that it's just going to be part of who I am. We can't allow ourselves to just be comfortable with sin. If we are believers, then we reject the things that God rejects. And we receive the things that God receives. And we trust Him to have the power to do that, right? So this is, this is part of the Christian life, is learning to call your sin what it is, and to repent of it. I never thought of it and, uh, as a sin. Yeah. <laughs> do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything through thanksgiving and supplication. Amen. Stephen. I was going to ask too. I mean, just to kind of clarify, you know, because I see she's saying anxious. But when you put anxious up there, I mean, don't get me wrong. You said that the reprobate.
made us anxious because there's someone else on the throne. Right? It was it was not just a general anxious, though we do acknowledge that anxiety is a sin. Not just a general anxiety, it's a specific anxiety that you yeah. reference, right? Yeah. And anxiety is a difficult sin because it's like there's like a spectrum here where the Christian does need to be cautious and does need to have concern. So at what point are you bleeding out of concern, proper concern, and into empty worry and anxiety when you start to fear for no reason? So that's not always easy to see up front. So the Christian isn't just some kamikaze wild man of faith that just runs through life and never considers the consequences of things. We should have proper concern. You know, when we find out that our brother has been hijacked and that he could be in serious trouble physically, there is concern there. That's proper compassion towards a brother. And we hopefully pray that God would allow him to get through this safely. That's not sin. We don't need to repent of that concern. But when we have an empty anxiety that's not founded in truth and that denies God's presence in part in what we do, then that, that falls into sin. So we need to repent of it. Call it what it is. It should cause us to say, leave, leave us to God. I can't hear you, John. <laughs> I said, when, when I have anxiety, I know at the end of the day, it should say, it should cause me to say, leave me to the rock that is higher than I. Yeah. So you don't get the marijuana cigarette? No. <laughs> That's right. It gets the. Not in a decade and a half. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. All right, Josh. What did you say? Shall we read it? Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you and no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So psalms like that can be a great, a great reminder of the love that God has for us and the sanctuary that we have in him. So thank you for sharing that, Josh. All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming. Next uh, week is Easter. We will not have an evening service because a lot of people are going to be spending some time with their families after church on Easter Sunday. But we will be back the week after that to uh, be addressing catechism question number three. All right. So let's... Uh, for the breakfast, if you didn't do so already, if you yes. Please do. If you want to come to breakfast on Easter Sunday morning at 7, no, uh, 7.30 to 8.30, please let us know so we can buy enough bacon and eggs and pancakes, all right? 
Let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing grace and for the dominion that you have over us. We confess and declare tonight that you are who you say you are, that you truly do exist, Lord God, and you are not just uh, existing in our mind, in our thoughts. You are not just some ideal that man has invented to comfort himself. Long before a man ever took a breath, you you were real. And long after the last man has, has died, you will be real. You are forever Alpha and Omega. You are the giver of life and the sustainer of life. And so guard us from a, a calloused heart that refuses to believe in you. We thank you for your grace and ask that you would continue to guide us in your word in Jesus' name. Amen.